Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called The Temple of His Body. It's based upon the lectionary readings from March 4th, 2018. Not long ago, I came across a hymn that stopped me in my tracks. Composed by Brian Wren, it's entitled Good is the Flesh, and its lyrics are as follows. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the birthing, the milk and the breast. Good is the feeding, caressing, and rest. Good is the body for knowing the world. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body for knowing the world, sensing the sunlight, the tug of the ground, feeling, perceiving, within and around. Good is the body from cradle to grave. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body from cradle to grave, growing and aging, arousing, impaired, happy in clothing or lovingly bared. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh, longing in all as in Jesus to dwell, glad of embracing and tasting and smell. Good is the body for good and for God. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good as the flesh was not a phrase I grew up hearing in church, much less milk in the breast or glad of embracing and tasting and smell. Though I learned early on that the Incarnation is central to Christian orthodoxy, I did not learn to link that doctrine to actual bodies, actual flesh. Much less did I learn to honor the sacred in skin, limbs, muscles, and hair, mine or anyone else's. But that is precisely what Jesus does with this week's Gospel reading, when he brandishes a whip, overturns the tables of the money changers, drives out the sheep and cattle, and dares his listeners to destroy this temple. They misunderstand, of course, and assume that Jesus is referring to the Herodian temple they're standing in. But no, St. John insists in his Gospel, Jesus isn't referring to edifices built of stone or brick or wood. The home of the transcendent is not a courtyard, a parapet, or an altar. Rather, God resides in a different kind of temple altogether, the temple of Jesus' own body. During this Lenten season, I'm thinking and praying a lot about what it means to honor human bodies, mine, yours, everyone's, as holy places, as homes for God. It's not an easy thing to do in a religious culture that too often views the body as inherently sinful, shameful, and spiritually dangerous. Neither is it easy to do in a secular culture that commodifies the body, cheapening it for the sake of profit. Most of the time, I see my own body as something to shrink, conquer, or tame. I see its flaws so much more clearly than I see its God-ordained beauty and dignity. Rarely, so rarely, do I see it as a vehicle for worship, love, hospitality, and grace. And yet if St. John is telling us something essential about where and how we might find God, we are people of the Incarnation in the truest sense, called to look, to see, to break bread, share wine, and wash feet. How can we learn to see our embodied lives, our sensory lives, our physical lives as fully implicated in our lives with God? How can we move past contempt, squeamishness, and fear and offer God our whole selves? How can we welcome the pleasure of God in our flesh? In this week's Gospel story, there's a high cost involved in honoring human flesh as the home of the divine. What Jesus calls out when he cleanses a temple is not Judaism or its various forms of worship. It is a system of exploitation via exorbitant tithes and taxes that blocks access to the divine, that literally keeps the bodies of the poor outside the gates of the temple, forcing them into more and endless debt before they can approach and worship God. In her book, An Altar in the World, Barbara Brown Taylor writes that it is not possible to lean into God's love for my body without simultaneously recognizing that God loves all bodies everywhere. The bodies of the hungry children and indentured women, along with the bodies of sleek athletes and cigar-smoking tycoons. 
One of the truer things about bodies, Taylor concludes, is that it is just about impossible to increase the reverence I show mine while also without also increasing the reverence I show yours. In other words, once I value my own body as God's temple, as a site of God's pleasure, delight, and grace, how can I stand by while other bodies suffer exploitation, poverty, discrimination, or abuse? Apparently Jesus could not. He interrupted worship for the sake of justice. He moved from compassion to righteous anger to decisive action because he would not stand for the violation of sanctuary. He would not do tolerate blocked access to his father's house. He would not stomach any version of unfairness and cruelty towards the most vulnerable and beleaguered people in his society. But we don't hear much about anger in mainline churches these days. After all, there's something unseemly about rage, right? Something unsophisticated, something crude. It's not polite to get angry, and it's positively insupportable to stay angry. But Jesus, the temple of God, burned with zeal for his father's house. He didn't use love and forgiveness as palliatives. He allowed a holy anger to move him to action on behalf of the helpless and the voiceless. In this story, there is nothing godly about responding to systemic evil with passive acceptance or unexamined complicity. If human bodies are really temples, holy places where heaven and earth meet, then we must work, as Jesus did, to preserve and protect these holy places from every form of reverence and desecration. We must let go of the comfortable belief that our highest calling as Christians is to niceness. But this cannot happen if we keep our faith lives tethered at the level of intellectual abstraction, if we live a Christianity of the mind without also living one of the flesh. After all, it is with our bodies that we experience deep pain, deep anger, deep terror, and deep joy. It's my chest that hurts when I mourn. It's my face that burns when I'm angry. It's my whole body that warms with pleasure when I'm happy. In her widely influential essay, The Power of Anger in the Work of Love, Beverly Harrison writes, the important point is that where feeling is evaded, where anger is hidden or goes unattended, masking itself, there the power of love, the power to act, to deepen relation, atrophies and dies. So I'm asking myself during this Lenten season, where has my power to act, to deepen relationship or to love fiercely, atrophied? Where has my faith become so abstract, so disembodied that I no longer find it natural to rejoice with those who rejoice or mourn with those who mourn? Good is the flesh that the word has become. Do we believe this? Do we believe it enough to honor bodies, all bodies, as precious temples of God? We dare not say yes glibly, because as John Dominic Crossan reminds us, the cost involved is steep. Those who live by compassion are often canonized, but those who live by justice are often crucified. No, it's not either or, it is both and. We are called to both compassion and to justice. But as Simeon the new theologian expressed it so eloquently a thousand years ago, it is our love for Christ's body that will compel us to both. For if we genuinely love him, we wake up inside Christ's body. We're all our body, all over. Every most hidden part of it is realized in joy as him, and he makes us utterly real. And everything that is hurt, everything that seemed to us dark, harsh, shameful, maimed, ugly, irreparably damaged, is in him transformed and recognized as whole, as lovely, and radiant in his light. He awakens as the beloved, in every last part of our body. For books this week, Dan reviews On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder. Timothy Snyder's little book originated as a post on Facebook that went viral, became a book, and ended up number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Snyder, the Levin professor of history at Yale University, speaks five languages, has a reading knowledge of five more languages, and is an expert on Eastern Europe, which is to say that he knows the meaning of tyranny. The European history of the 20th century, writes Snyder, 
shows us that societies can break, democracies can fall, ethics can collapse, and ordinary men can find themselves standing over death pits with guns in their hands. It would serve us well to understand why. Snyder gives us a grocery list of lessons from Europe's dark history that are meant to warn us of the illusion of American exceptionalism. Some of them are macro-institutional, like number two, defend institutions. Others are micro-personal, like number 12, make eye contact and small talk. Or number 14, establish a private life. I was especially taken by number 9, be kind to our language, and number 17, listen for dangerous words. The day that I finished this book, the Washington Post reported that the Trump administration is prohibiting officials at the nation's top public health agency from using a list of seven words or phrases in official documents being prepared for next year's budget. Policy analysts at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta were told of the list of forbidden terms at a meeting Thursday with senior CDC officials who oversee the budget according to an analyst who took part in the 90-minute briefing. The forbidden terms are vulnerable, entitlement, diversity, transgender, fetus, evidence-based, and science-based. A few critics think that Snyder is too alarmist. Others believe he's the canary in the coal mine. You can decide for yourself. Whatever the case, eternal vigilance, observed our founding fathers, is the price of liberty. Snyder's book reminded me of another important manifesto, the little 40-pager by the concentration camp survivor Stefan Hessel, Time for Outrage. For movies this week, Dan reviews Get Out. In this, his director debut, Jordan Peele produced a movie that was on any number of best of 2017 lists. On Rotten Tomatoes, for example, the film has earned a remarkable 99% approval rating. The story revolves around a young black photographer named Chris, who reluctantly agrees to visit the family of his white girlfriend Rose at their lakefront country estate. Do your parents know I'm black? Chris asks Rose. Don't worry, she responds. They're not racists. My dad would have voted for Obama a third time. The story begins with biting social satire directed at white liberal condescension toward blacks, then awkward social situations of all sorts, proceeds to creepy hypnosis and the strange behavior of the groundskeeper and housekeeper, both of whom are black, and finally ends as a certifiable horror film. In the final scene, Chris's buddy Rod tells him, Man, I told you not to go into that house. Indeed. Get Out premiered at the 2017 Sundance Festival. Dan watched this film on the Netflix DVD. And finally, for the third week of Lent, we offer a Lenten prayer from Isaiah 58. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March 4th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.